let's pray for a moment. Uh, Lord God Almighty, we've used, uh, in affirming our faith, words from your servant Paul, uh, that Jesus humbled himself even to death, and then you highly exalted him. And we pray that as we're told in this reading now that there is a sign at work, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see what that sign means in terms of who Jesus is and to bring him uh, an appropriate worship of mind and heart. Amen. Well, there are, of course, very many differences between men and women. And you can express that in simple ways and in complicated ways. But I wonder whether there are uh, as many differences as would be outlined if I simply introduce you to the notion of a bath. Uh, Apart from doing the ice bucket challenge recently when I got quite cold and had to have someone run a hot bath for me, I I have to think quite hard about the last time I had a bath. Um, But you, you already know that it does not mean I'm particularly smelly or dirty because we have a shower. And our daughter Isabel would occasionally come home from university and one would blunder into the bathroom and discover that in the semi-gloom there were candles. The the consumption of candles in our household um, rocketed uh, when our daughter was home. Uh, And and there were sort of smelly fragrances all around the place. And I I just don't get uh, what it is about women and baths. Perhaps, actually, I I don't particularly feel I need to either. Um, So... You don't particularly need to explain it to me. But it does mean that as we come to our reading today, um, there may be a difference of perception about the importance of cleansing. I am at least convinced that cleansing is at the very heart of our reading, and we'll explore that. But perhaps by the end of our time, we'll discover that men and women have uh, seen it slightly differently. But there are two questions I want to throw at our passage. They're pretty good ones for any text. Firstly, what is God saying? And secondly, what am I to do about it? Firstly, what is God saying? Do you please have the reading uh, open in front of you, if you would, page uh, 1064, a bit more on the next page. Whatever God is saying... It's going to depend on the idea that's there in verse 4, that the hour or time has not yet come. It's a common enough idea on the lips of Jesus in John's Gospel. Uh, And it's normally in that form, the hour or time has not come. Until that is at chapter 12. And there, for the first time, Jesus says... The hour has come. And the difference seems to be that uh, he says that when some Greeks, some Gentiles, come and ask, say, we want to see Jesus. The hour comes when the Gentiles want to see him, 
And now then, he goes on to describe this hour, this time. And he talks about the buried seed dying in order to give rise, give life to the wheat that it is to be. Quite clearly then, the hour, the time, is the time of death. And in John's Gospel, the way, the, the, the shape of it is not, uh, uh, oh, how awful, here is the death of Jesus, but then how magnificent, here's the good news, the resurrection. It's not a kind of bad news, good news story in that way. The glory of God shines, mostly in John's Gospel, at the cross itself. The resurrection works through with great joy what, what, what it means, but the glory of God uh, is at the cross itself, at the death itself. And the hour, then, becomes the time of the Gentiles, the nations, the world, that's in chapter 12, uh, when it does come. So already in verse 4 here, what we're finding is God saying, this man bears the glory of God and is for the world. But the fullness of all of that is not yet. Now, one of the problems of this passage is that it feels like everything means something. So what, for example, does wine mean? Well, some people say, well, wine. Uh, yeah, we remember there's a bit in the Old Testament that says, wine to make glad the heart of man. And we all know what wine, the effect of wine is, so it must be a sign of great joy and release. Uh, others get terribly worried because it's um, alcoholic and uh, start to say, well, obviously, when it says wine, it doesn't mean wine. It means um, they, they took grape juice. Um, uh, but actually, what they would have drunk as wine is kind of in between. They would have had something... Their wine in those days would have been something like port for us. But then they drank it diluted with water, down to something between about a fifth or a tenth uh, of its strength. So... Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Australia and had any beer there, because they, they need enormous volumes of liquid to cope with a hot temperature. Uh, Australian beer is almost entirely tasteless and almost entirely without alcohol. Um, it, the percentage of alcohol is tiny, and that's kind of what they would have drunk in uh, Jesus' day. Not the beer, you understand, but the kind of thinned-down wine. It's quite funny, though, isn't it, to imagine Jesus kind of sitting there with corks dangling off his hat. Uh, but um, anyway, let's, let's leave that image for a moment. Um, or perhaps, as some say, and rightly they say, that the age of wine, there are these pictures in the, the Old Testament again of, of the furrows of the field running with wine as a sign of the joy that there is in the whole created order because Messiah, the Christ, has come. And the rivers are run with wine. Well, they do, and it is part of the picture of the Old Testament. But I'm not sure it's what this means. Wine can mean all of these things, but what does the context tell us? If the hour that has not yet come is the hour of glory and death, then the wine most probably connects to that. Jesus, when he speaks of bread, a little later on, speaks of his body as bread that must be eaten, speaks amazingly of his blood that must be drunk. 
And if the wine is a sign of blood, then it becomes a sign not of the joy of the Messiah, but of the death of the Messiah. Well, what about these these water jars? John takes some trouble to explain to us that the jars, and between them, those six jars, would have been uh, between 100 and 150 gallons worth. It's uh, it's a lot of jar, a lot of water. There for the ceremonial cleansing of the Jewish people. Now, I guess this place, whatever it was, was set up for a feast. But 150 gallons—that's a lot of water per person in a, a culture in a in a part of the world that does not enjoy an enormous amount of water. They really went for this cleansing thing. And as I said earlier, there may be some of you that understand that more than others. But again, I'm not persuaded by what I think I've always heard this to be, that the the ritual of the Jews is replaced by the spontaneous overflowing joy of the follower of Jesus. I I hope it's true, I hope that the ritual of the Jews is replaced by spontaneous overflowing joy. I'm just not sure that's what this is saying. Partly because that draws attention to the follower of Jesus, and there's really none of that here. But the bit that I find really curious is verse 7. It's Jesus himself who says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, yes, you can say, well, he knows he's going to do a miracle with the water. But he could have done that under almost any circumstances. And in a sense, why weren't the jars already full? There's something for for Jesus about sticking with the claim that's already there, that these things are for cleansing. So whatever replaces them may be to do with cleansing as well. And put that together with what the wine might symbolize, and it seems to me the most likely interpretation of what's going on here is this. Jesus fully understands that the water of the Jewish rituals is for cleansing. And he sees his own calling then as a cleansing. There is the hour that is not yet come, but it's here hinted at. And it's a death in blood, that will be a final cleansing for all the people. It's not just better than the water, as the steward says. It is the best that God has saved till last. And all these, there's this clustering of things around death, the ceremonial cleansing, which stood for the the cleansing of animal blood in sacrifice. There's the hour of glory, which is the hour of death. There is the wine that uh, is to be drunk, because it's a sign of death. Well, John loves it. When people say one thing and mean it, but we, observing the wider uh, picture, see that something else is going on. John is a master of the kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So the high priest says at one point, it makes sense for one man to die for the people. The high priest means one thing, to avoid deaths from the Romans at a time of high tension. Then one man should die. But we know, ah, dies for the people, eh? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, something else is going on. Similarly, I could imagine that the steward 
saying, you saved the best till last, means one thing in the context of the feast, but also means, as a nudge, nudge, wink, wing to us, ah, Jesus has saved the best cleansing till the last of God's time. It might have been expected that after the, the Jewish dispensation, things might get cheaper and nastier and fade away, but not at all. The steward kind of signals to us, all unknowing of his own, that this is the very best possible. Which all means, if it's right, that we can say what God is saying here. Notice how verse 11 goes back over the ground that there was in verse 1. It talks about the place again. It makes it clear what John wants us to get from the account. This was a sign. John almost never uses the same word for miracle that you get in the rest of the New Testament, which means a mighty act. He nearly always uses uh, this word sign or wonder, and, and frequently together, meaning it, 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 it had better function as a sign. It better point to something. And it points, as here, to Jesus and his glory. He thus revealed his glory, verse 11. And this sign points forward to the glory of Jesus upon the cross because it's pointing to the one true effective cleansing that Jesus brings over the alternative that was around at the time. Jesus is the final purification that gives access to God. Well, I could spend longer on that, but let's go on. What is God saying was the first question. Jesus is the one final purification. But the second question remains, what are we supposed to do with it? What am I to do about it? And this is where I want to think about Mary. Given that the start of John's gospel, you'll know it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a deliberate echo of Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. And frankly, given that women don't get much of a starring role in most of Scripture, I can't work this out. I can't work out whether it's deliberate or coincidental that what Eve gets wrong at the start of Genesis, Mary gets right at the start of John. Let's, let's consider the interchange that happens between Jesus and Mary. Joseph's not here. At the beginning, we're told, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It'd be simply unthinkable uh, to say, um, we're inviting uh, Mary and Jesus and all his friends, but we're not going to invite Joseph. So if Joseph's not mentioned we make the assumption that it's probably because he wasn't around anymore. Mary was probably a widow. She would have been entirely dependent on Jesus and any other brothers uh, for her own support. Well, you can imagine that if you have Jesus for a son, you get to kind of rely on him a little. He's probably quite good at quite a few things. And uh, so when... Uh, I suppose she's, she's got used to relying on him. And when the wine runs out, uh, she helpfully says to him, in case he hadn't already noticed, they have no more wine. And Jesus' reply is very odd. It's much odder than we get in our translation. 
Uh, Dear woman, uh, we read, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time's not yet come. Well, we've looked at the time. But what he says, the way he calls her, is very odd. There's no easy way to translate it into English. It's, uh, it's not intimate, it's not a particularly affectionate, it's not rude, but it's a bit cold, it's a bit distant. Um, uh, I, I'm told that um, if you uh, meet the Queen, um, the first time you sort of talk to her, you call her Your Majesty, and after that you call her Ma'am. And apparently it's very, very bad form if you say Ma'am. Um, so just pass that on in case it's ever of importance to you. Um, but there's something that's kind of quite cold about it, ma'am. And that's the tone of what Jesus says here. It, he's talking to a woman uh, with whom he's not particularly connected, and it's just a bit standoffish. And then he says, why do you involve me? Uh, literally, the, uh, the phrase there means, it, the phrase says, what to me and to you? Now, and that's a phrase that comes up a number of times in the Gospels. Every other time it comes up, it's an interchange between Jesus and a demon. Jesus is, is, is it's not wrong to translate it, what have I to do with you? Normally the demons say it to Jesus, what have you to do with us? It's, it's distant, it's, it's angry, it's abrupt. So what is going on? Simeon, a long time ago, had said to Mary that a sword would pierce her own heart also. And I'm guessing that to be treated like this by Jesus must have seemed quite a sharp point at that moment. Jesus is not being unkind for the sake of it, but he is being sharp. In the garden, he says to another Mary, don't hold on to me. It seems that he understands, he gets, how these important people in his life will approach him on the basis that, well, we know you, Jesus, your family. You're you're really close friend, you're my closest friend. But he turns from it. He turns them from it. As he approaches his hour, his time, he knows that will not be the right way to approach him. A different basis has to be found for engaging with him. On Friday, uh, I was at a funeral, and I saw some grown-up children that I'd last seen years ago when they were yay high. And a number of them were now married Uh, and had jobs and so on, and they would not have thanked me if I had said to them, wow, last time I saw you, you were just this high. We can probably all remember some time of being horribly patronized and remembered as one thing when we felt we'd grown out of it. The only basis now of approach to Jesus is no longer, yeah, I know you, Jesus, you're my son, you're my, this, this is family, this is deep friendship. No, no, no. As his hour approaches, it may not yet have come, but the hour approaches, and he demands to be treated as one who is going to offer the final cleansing 
the final purifier, the final answer from God to the problem of humankind. And Mary, to her credit, gets it. Jesus does, after all, then do what she asked for in the first place. And I guess he always knew he would. But for him, what's primary is getting the relationship clear. As a mother, she is reproached. But as a believer, she is honoured. She comes to him and says, uh, they've got no more wine, and she gets this, dear woman, what is, what is, what's to you and to me? But then she kind of gets it and turns away from him, but points to him and says to those around him, do whatever he tells you. And there is a good result. And it seems to me the model of what we are to do with what God is saying. I want to commend Mary to you tonight. Perhaps you're here and you have followed Jesus for years. Great. But I'm not primarily speaking to you. I want to talk to those who may perhaps regard Jesus well, but humanly. Perhaps you were brought up to think well of him. Perhaps you learned the stories. You're here because, well, well, you just like him. But if even his mother had to learn that she could not any longer approach Jesus on that good but human basis, how much more is that the lesson now for us? She first turns to him within the expectation of a dutiful family. But he overturns it. She has to lose all of that. She turns from him then to instruct others, and she does so as a disciple, expectant that something will happen. It's a remarkable change, and I commend it to you. In some ways, it's another of those ironies. What Mary says to these servants, we are to overhear and apply to ourselves. Do whatever he tells you. That's what it is to be a disciple. It's to do whatever Jesus says. And that's the invitation that I think Mary represents for us tonight and any other day. Especially if there are those here who have never taken that radical step that says, yes, that's what I want my life to be. I want to do whatever Jesus tells me. There's no longer any need for religion and repetitive ritual. There is no need to think we are impressing God. There is only a kind of scraped back to the bone, uh, basic, radical response. I will do whatever you tell me. Start now, for that hour that Jesus spoke of is still lying ahead. That hour has now come, and it has now gone, and Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. And just a moment of silence. Jesus is here making clear that the hour of his death, the hour of his glory represents the one final, complete, perfect cleansing.
There is no more to say, no more to do, no more to be believed. And I put no pressure on anyone who already follows Jesus as Lord to have some extravagant reaction, although you may. But I do invite those who have never, never recognized his finality to turn, as Mary does, from thinking of him as kind of ordinary to thinking of him entirely differently as the one before whom we must simply do whatever he says. I told you earlier of a man who has come from Iran, leaving family and friends behind. Has paid an extraordinary cost, and for whom presumably it would have been a lot easier to deny Jesus and to stick with Islam. Lord God, we come to you tonight. We know, we we began our service with a confession. We know the times that we have not done whatever you told us to do in Jesus. But we also know that there are many of us here this evening uh, who, faced with that, want to confess it. We We know that it's wrong, that we want to do what he says. But I want to pray on behalf of all those who have never said it, who have never just recognized that it's Jesus or nothing, his way or no way, his finality or just endless pointlessness, his cleansing or we remain dirty forever. We turn to him and we ask the gift of your spirit to inhabit our lives and to give us that desire deep down to do whatever Jesus tells us for the rest of our lives.